Welcome back to the Zero Hour, brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. I'm your host, George Comedy. I'm Ashley Stone. And today's special guest on week two of our National Cybersecurity Awareness Month weekly podcast series is Brian Honan, the founder and CEO of BH Consulting uh, in Ireland. He is a blogger, author. He speaks like everywhere. Um, and he is a special advisor on cybersecurity to Europol. The man is a legend. We were so excited to talk to him. He was fantastic. Can't wait for you to hear about info security and all about people. That's right. Um, and if you are interested, I highly suggest following him on Twitter. He's a very valuable resource at Brian Honan. But without further ado, let's get into it with Brian Honan. Hello, Brian. Hey, George. How are you doing? All right. Um, well, thanks very much for taking the time for joining us. Uh, you also have on the line uh, my colleague, Ashley Stone. Hi there. Hey, Ashley. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Um, okay. So uh, let's just start off with, um, for our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about your journey, both through info security and how that has um converged with uh, a professional working life of entrepreneurship? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, George. Uh, uh, I think it's very hard to put my finger on when did I get interested in cybersecurity. Uh, I've always been interested in electronics and uh, playing around with, with radio. So when I was, was growing up in the late 70s and 80s, I, my parents used to give out to me because I was constantly taking any toys I got, such as uh, Skeletrics cars, which are like slot car racers or radios, and I'd take them apart and see could I make them any better. So I'd be looking to tune the electronics in some way. I, I was always looking to make radios out of bits of uh, clothes wire hangers lying around and batteries etc so I've always had an interest in electronics and uh, that that type of world uh, but growing up I also had a very strong interest and wanted to, ambition to become a police officer uh, but when I left school that never materialized I started working in a life uh, uh, assurance company as a clerk in their pension scheme so well away from electronics and well away from uh, policing that I wanted to do uh, but there was this computer in the corner and I became the go-to person in the department for problems with that computer and eventually uh, a job opening came in the computer department for somebody to look after these new things called PCs. Yes. Some, <laughs> some managers in the company had bought some of these PC things and they needed somebody to help them look after it. So uh, I applied and I got the job. Uh, so my career probably started there because in you know, in hindsight, when I look at it, working for a life assurance company, which had a lot of regulatory and business needs to keep the data of their customers secure. And even back then, in 1988, Ireland had introduced its first Data Protection Act, which is one of the precursors to 
GDPR today. Wow, that feels uh, that feels early. Yeah. Oh yeah, it, it was it was uh, way back then, and uh, as the PC usage in the company grew and uh, local area networks started to come into place, and then we went to client server computing. A lot of the functionality, the data, and the systems that were being used on a centralized mainframe, which would have been very robust and secure, were being migrated down onto these uh, new technologies. And the company took the, the the view that no matter where the information is, it should be as secure as it was in the mainframe. So I was in the enviable position, even though I didn't think of it at the time, as working with this new technology, but. In my younger days, I would have thought I was being uh, handcuffed and held back and restrained by this old thinking mainframe Mm -hmm. way of managing security and managing technology. But at the end of the day, the disciplines that I learned then uh, have stood the test of time over the years since. And, you know, as my career grew and and I changed from different jobs and doing different things, cyber security and, you know, as we call it, cyber security now became more and more important. And, uh, yeah, so that's where, that's what, how my start in cyber security happened. It came from tinkering with electronic uh, electric toys and radios to playing around with mainframe computers and then having the responsibility for looking after personal computers, uh, mini computers and local area networks as the mainframe world shrank and the online world grew. Yeah, that's, uh, well, it's an interesting, I think I share your journey um, (laughs) into computing by dint of being like usually the youngest person in the room and therefore just assumed that I would be able to understand computers better than others and that (laughs) that level of exposure uh leads leads elsewhere um and i I wish i I wish i could claim to be the youngest person in the room nowadays but uh, unfortunately (laughs) unless i visit a nursing home that's not going to (laughs) happen yes yeah um time waits for no one um i think it's interesting that evolution from the mainframe to you know what we now know as lands it is kind of parallel to what we're seeing in terms of local data storage and migration into the cloud which is something we'll touch on later but it just occurred to me that that's a that's a very interesting um parallel path i guess maybe the the evolution towards decentralization well i wouldn't even say it's the evolution towards decentralization in if i look back at my uh, career george what i can see is we've had these cycles so mm-hmm. we you know if you like personal computers was the first cycle of decentralization of data and information and empowering the users so we're moving from centralized computing into personal computing uh, that worked well for the the early 90s etc and then we realized we need more you know those local computers didn't have the power they needed so we went to client server technology so we kind of shared the load between each other and then we had uh, Citrix and 10 client computing came and it was again with centralizing things mm-hmm. towards the, uh, the the center and then the internet exploded and it was pushing data back out and and technology back out to the user uh, and we're seeing uh, you know the explosion of bringing up bringing on devices, et cetera, is, is the uh, 
personalization again of, of data and technology. But now with cloud computing, we're kind of bringing it back to a centralized way. And I, I think we're going to see this ebb and flow o- over time of uh, centralized versus decentralized and, and as, as we try and get a, a balance of what what's best and how uh, information can be best utilized. Mm-hmm. And then... Um so how did you decide or move into the more entrepreneurial role, like from your professional working life and networking to deciding, you know, you wanted to go out on your own, which is kind of like an entirely different uh, <laughs> bag of cats. Yeah. Well, I suppose working for that, I worked for that life insurance company for the first nine, 10 years of my career. Mm-hmm. And towards the latter half of that time there, I, I kind of felt this, you know, this environment is not for me I, I what i enjoyed at the time working with pcs was the freedom it gave me i you know the company was very good it, it allowed me to have a lab that i could tinker and play around with systems so uh you know today many if you like security researchers are uh people looking at uh security can set virtual machines up uh, the cost of technology is so much cheaper than it was then that it's quite easy to set a lab up and to experiment and to hack systems and to look away to, to break things and improve improve them back then in the, the the early 90s you know your average pc was between three thousand to five thousand dollars so it was a very expensive item but the company was very good in that i could have this lab and i was able to tinker and and, and uh play around with the technology and, and uh, look at ways to integrate our networks with our mainframes with our mini systems and it was quite exciting times but then i suppose everyone uh, said the benefits were learning the discipline and the, the the management skills that did catch up with the pc environment and i felt kind of restrained by that and i wanted to tinker more and Back then, I set up my first company. So I would work for uh, my employer, uh, nine to five. Mm -hmm. um, And then after five, I would go work for my own company. Uh, We were actually project managing, helping a third-party company develop a security product for Windows Uh, Mm 3.1. It was a platform to allow the user... uh, access to Windows 3.1, which at the time was just a single user platform. It was very insecure. So we were looking at doing uh, encryption of the hard disk, including antivirus software in it. So we were quite innovative. Unfortunately, we were a bit slow to market and the product never never took off. Mm. But that's where my entrepreneurial spirit t- took on. I then joined a, a small startup in Dublin in 1996. Uh, uh, as a consultant for them, working with their clients in the financial sector, both throughout Europe and in Ireland, and helping them migrate their their systems from uh, centralized mainframes down to PCs and to Windows NT uh, back in the day. Uh, and that helped me satisfy the entrepreneurial stuff because we're in a startup and uh, it worked well. Uh, I left them in 2000 to become the global head of operations for uh, an online application service provider for an exchange uh, solution, which will be deemed a cloud 
SaaS solution today, but mm-hmm. back then the cloud hadn't been invented. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and spent two years working with them, uh, and then moved into another startup which was doing a uh, managed security service provider, uh, very much a precursor to a lot of what the the, the players are doing now. But uh, in 2004, I kind of said, "Look, um, I spent the past." eight to ten years of my career working hard for other people and making them money <laughs> i think there's there, there's opportunity here in 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 cybersecurity for me to continue to make money but to work for um myself and to explore things uh i felt weren't being addressed by working for those those other companies and uh hence i set up bh consulting back in 2004 and uh it's been a roller coaster ride since great i mean really it's all about getting back to the Freedom to tinker sounds like it's the freedom to t- tinker. It's, it's uh, I suppose freedom to tinker sounds good. It's it's, it's the freedom to make mistakes, mm-hmm. uh, but also the freedom to learn from those mistakes. And and you know, uh, it hasn't been a straightforward journey in any shape or sense or form. Like when when I set the company up in two thousand and four, IT security as it was back then. Uh, wasn't uh, high on the agenda for many businesses. It was just a, an IT problem, and the people I dealt with back then were just IT managers, and many of them felt, well, you know, we've got a firewall, we've got antivirus software, what else do we need to, to keep ourselves secure? Sure, we're fine the way it is. So, you know, it wasn't a uh, an overnight success, and uh, it always brings back to, to, to mind the, a piece of advice I got from one of my early mentors who, who said, Brian, when you're starting your own business, you need to make sure there's a niche in the market for your business, mm-hmm. but also equally important, you need to make sure there's a market within that niche. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, you can come up with a great idea, but if it's not going to make you any money or pay the mortgage, uh, you know, It'll be short-lived. Right? Yes, hard to do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I'm sure things have certainly changed since you started until now. What's been the biggest change that you've seen with your clientele? Anything about cyber literacy, awareness, or just how they prioritize cybersecurity or even think about it? Yeah, it's a great question, Ashley. Like the, the, the biggest thing I've seen, uh, I kind of touched on there uh, a few minutes ago, is when I started in 2004, the the biggest challenge was you're talking to IT people. So you'd have to convince the IT people that they actually had a problem. And as we all know, IT people don't like to uh, be told they're wrong. <laughs> they have a problem. <laughs> Everything is fine. I'm doing a great job. You don't have to tell me what I'm doing wrong. I'm, everything's perfect. You know, please move on. <laughs> uh, but once you got that person convinced, they would then also happen to try and sell it into their management because invariably they'd be looking for more budget or more right. investment. And that that was where the big challenge was. I think coupled with that as well is if we look back at the uh, global economy, particularly coming towards 2008, et cetera, we had the financial crash. Uh, and that impacted a lot on businesses because cybersecurity and anything to do with, you know, 
not that not that wasn't to do it directly with the with the bottom line got cut uh, and was deprioritized and uh but since then uh, particularly in the past number of years we've seen a huge change in awareness about the importance of cybersecurity and it's 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 definitely has moved away from being an IT problem to being a business risk mm-hmm. uh and it's been tre- in many cases, you know, when we go in and speak to our clients now, the the, the IT person is still in the room for the conversation, but invariably it, it it's also other people at the C-suite are there. It's either the CFO, the CEO, uh, the chief risk officer. Uh, they're the people we're talking to now, and they're the ones who are taking an active interest. And many of them see this as a business risk. So as it's a, a opposing not not necessarily that it's a problem, but that we have a risk and we need to manage this risk the same way we have uh, a risk with regards to our marketing, our sales, our our expansion plans. There are risks involved. How do we manage those risks and how do we we, we uh, ensure that the impact of any of those risks that should be realised uh, are as minimum to, to us as possible? And how what's the best way for us to invest our money in? managing our business and, and taking advantage of it. Mm-hmm. So we are seeing, that's where we're seeing the big change. And the more mature customers are seeing security as a way to uh, better sell themselves to their customers. You know, It's become a competitive advantage, right? I think we... Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, like they're... they're you know, it's, it's a trust relationship. If, if you're buying a service or a product for a company and particularly if it's an ongoing relationship and particularly if it's an expensive uh, item, you want to make sure that what you're getting does what it says in the tin and, and does what it says on the, uh, in the product description or, or whatever and that, that is secure and that you can trust it. And so trust is a very important part of security. You, you need to trust the technology you're getting. You need to trust the people that are working with you on that, uh, on, on that solution. You need to trust the businesses that you're dealing with. You need to trust the environment that you're operating within. Uh, you need to trust your clients. You need to trust your suppliers. You need to trust your employees. So trust is a very important part and it's it's how you manage that trust both internally to make sure that's staff are confident in, in what they do and that they're protected while they do their business on a day-to-day uh, 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 way and also with your customers that they can trust that any data they give you is, is properly protected as well. Yeah, and I, you bring up a good point about uh, what caught my ear was that, that you're saying the CFO is in the room. Uh, you know, people who are in charge of revenue are now talking about yeah. security. And, and we've spoken with some other uh, CISOs here on the podcast about these organizational challenges and silos, which uh, I guess continue to be a, a problem in some areas. But when you're working as an outsider, as a consultant, have you um, come across any strategies on how to either break down those that culture of silos or how to confront this problem of you know getting the problem out of you know IT and and seen as a larger yeah. uh, business issue well i suppose uh, there's two reasons why people uh, hire a consultant one is to find a scapegoat so <laughs> if it goes wrong they can, they can blame the consultants uh, Easy but enough. the other one i think is, yeah, exactly. Uh, but the other one I think is more important is that we bring to bear 
our expertise and experience from working with other businesses. So, you know, there's no challenge that a business has got that is unique to that business. Mm -hmm. It has been seen in many different shapes or forms in many other businesses. So we can bring that experience to bear. Uh, often what we find as well is that uh, you're coming in as the external consultant and very often the internal experts in that business have probably been saying many of the things we're going to be saying. Mm -hmm. They've probably identified many of the risks and many of the challenges that the business faces but may not have been uh, uh, herd properly, it's the old saying, you know, a profit in their, their homeland goes, goes, goes unheard. Uh, but we come in externally and we say the same thing and we're, we're hailed as geniuses and heroes for bringing <laughs> this up, you know. Uh, well, yes, that, I think that, that validation certainly helps. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so the way we, we try and do our engagement is, is, is and in particular with security, people are, are afraid you're going to come in and point out what's wrong or blame them for doing things the wrong way or this, you know, point, pointing the problems. And if we flip around and say, look, we're here to help, we're here to promote you and promote the issues that you've been faced to, 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 to get them addressed. And, you know, George, 90% of our engagements very often the issues around cybersecurity are not down to, to technology per se. It's down to lack of governance. It's down to lack of uh, proper risk management. It's lack of support by senior management. It's lack of documented policies and direction. Uh, so there's a lot of non-IT issues. So you very quickly make people understand, look, this is not, you know, cybersecurity is not a IT problem. And I do have to put it out there, I actually hate the phrase cybersecurity mm -hmm. because it does make the problem seem to be IT oriented or internet oriented, which in reality, if you're looking at information security or security, it's multifaceted. It's, it's down to people and the technology and other stuff as well. So, you know, we, we start talking to clients about, well, how are you ensuring that your staff are properly trained? and aware. How are you ensuring you're hiring the right people? How are you making sure that they, when they leave, they're not t taking uh, information away from you? What about the physical security of your building and your data centers? You know, it's all well and good having the most secure computers in the world, but somebody can walk in off the street and plug a USB key into it or take a, a desktop machine and walk back out, out the front door. You know, that's not the IT manager's problem. That's facilities of physical security. So it's trying to make sure that it's an all-encompassing program that, that, that you're working with and you you lay it down with the CEO and the C-suite that this is how it, this can impact your bottom line either directly or this is how from a regular point of view you're exposed. Then that can that, that's where you start reaping benefits. Yeah, I think that's a good distinction. We've actually noticed um a lot of our European counterparts prefer information security or infosec versus cybersecurity, and that that's an interesting uh, yeah. but, but notation so, so, there. Cybersecurity sounds sexy, and it's what has the boards paying up and paying attention. So, while I dislike the term, I I do have to say there is value in it from our industry point of view, and in that it is making people uh, pay more attention to it. But uh, you know. Yes, but I think we have often spoken with clients to say, you know, if you do take a step back and you get out of the weeds and you just think about 
like the literal definition of information security is considering what of that information is out there and how are you keeping it safe, whether that is IP, which is stored uh, either locally or in the cloud, or even just the conversations that your sales staff is having with prospects over shadow IT channels. That is company information. And you have, if you have no visibility into it or you have no way to control it, right? That, that presents a, a problem. Um, but cyber Absolutely. connotes, you know, computers and it doesn't really account for the, <laughs> the, the main device of choice today, which is the phone. Yeah. And back in my day, cyber had totally different connotations than it does today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So you, you've written extensively about cloud security and migration to the cloud continues to proceed at a rapid pace what do you see in your work is the biggest mistake or or maybe blind spot that companies have when they start to kick off this transformation yeah actually i think i think that's uh the answer to that question is kind of uh it's a two it's two edges to the one sword so one of the big challenges companies would say about moving to the cloud was that it's not secure enough and we're not moving to the cloud because we don't feel it's secure but cloud providers have done a lot of work to uh, reassure people that moving to cloud cloud is probably more secure than having the system in your own data center. You know, like if you're if you're a cloud provider, be that a SaaS, IS, or PaaS provider, you've invested millions of dollars in your data centers, in your staffing, in the tools to keep your business secure, because that is your business. Your business mm-hmm. is providing the service and making sure that it's secure. Uh, on the flip side, now that people go, okay, you know what, the cloud is secure, I can just dump my, my I can migrate to the cloud, and by default, it's going to be secure. And that's not, in many cases, that doesn't happen. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's not a, a you know, a simple case of picking up a system from your mainframe or your network and plonking it into the cloud that by uh, by just doing that simple task, you're, you're, you're going to make the system inherently more secure. Uh, and we've seen that with people moving into AWS or Azure where they put a system up there and they just accept the, the defaults that are provided to them by the cloud provider without reviewing the security settings and making sure uh, they're, you know, the, that data is not publicly accessible when it shouldn't be. And Right. How many, how many uh, publicly accessible S3 buckets have been behind exactly. <laughs> breaches? Exactly. Are people moving to Office 365 and, you know, not turning on multi-factor authentication or not tweaking the security of the more details and then people getting fished for their passwords and suddenly mm-hmm. the, the, their, their email accounts are exposed. Uh, you know, it's just because you're moving to the cloud, you are moving to a more secure environment, but you still have to do some work on top of that to make your applications, your systems, or the service you're using more secure. So uh, I think a big part of it is that, you know, m- moving it to a third-party provider means you're moving a certain amount of the operational issues to a third-party provider, but the responsibility is still with you to make sure everything is still secure. Yeah. I think yeah. That's, that's where people are, are, are falling. Yeah, and I think I'm also fascinated by this idea that businesses may embrace the idea of the cloud, but because it is 
a singular word, it's just the noun, the cloud, that they, <laughs> they, they think of the environment as this singular entity, right? And you said, yeah. you said, sure, AWS, but you also have Office 365. You could have uh, sellers using LinkedIn. You could be on Slack. You could, it's actually kind yeah. of, uh, those are, we think of them as SaaS products, but that information is passing through essentially cloud servers. So really the modern business is kind of a multi-cloud environment. And so if they just say like, we're going to move to the cloud, they think about just securing the cloud, but they may not actually think about all of the business processes that are connected to the cloud. But even more importantly, George, they may not even be aware of all the business processes they have. Uh, Like we've done audits and reviews of uh, security for clients and We've asked the question, do you engage in the cloud? And they, oh, no, no, we don't. We don't. Then you go and talk to the, sa- to the sales manager, and the sales manager says, yeah, we use LinkedIn uh, for generating sales leads. Are we use Salesforce um, in the cloud? And We're storing all of our might, PowerPoints on this Google Drive that we share. <laughs> exactly, yeah. You know, or uh, you go into the sales and marketing people, and they say, yeah, we've, we, we subscribe to a, a, a Dropbox or a Box.net or, or mm-hmm. some cloud file-sharing file uh, platform. And then you end up with these uh, disparate cloud systems, as you say, a multi-cloud system in in an environment which are not being managed in a secure way. It's, um, you know, if it, 10 years ago, if you were a head of sales and you wanted a CRM system, you had to go to the IT people and they either built you a CRM system from scratch uh, or they went out and procured a, mm-hmm. a system and bought a server and installed it on, on the system. Uh, again, we done a, an audit of a company once and we discovered that this company was using uh, a, a cloud-based CRM, CRM system simply because when the head of sales went to IT to cost and get an, an estimation for when they could have a new CRM system, uh, the IT people came back and said, here's the cost and it's going to take 18 months because we need to buy, procure these servers, we need to get these installed. And the sales guy, out of frustration, just turned around with his, and, and signed up just using their credit card. Yes, so. <laughs> precisely, precisely, right. It's, yeah. it's understanding how your uh, employees are incentivized, right? The sales team exactly. is motivated by sales and needs this tool so yeah, you correct. telling them that they can't have it right now is a surefire yes, right. recipe for disaster. Yeah, we're not waiting 18 months for our commission. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and one thing we say to our clients now is uh, for part of your security monitoring, should be getting a feed in from your finance department as to uh, uh, staff credit card spend, you know, if if... if if company credit cards are being used for subscription to uh, cloud-based services, that should trigger an alert in the finance that comes to you so that you can sort of be quickly identify whether or not your systems, your, your data is being used in a cloud system that you're not aware of. Right, and then compounded with the BYOD environment, right? So you yeah. tell the, the sales team in India that they can't use WhatsApp and they're going to say, well, how am I supposed to talk to anyone, right? Because that is that is the channel of choice in that region. So I, f- I feel like yeah. there's like a severe disconnect. And then the BYOD just really compounds the, the shadow IT problem. Because again, people will use the tools that are most efficient to, to do their jobs. Absolutely. And, and people also forget that in many, in some jurisdictions, certain tools such as WhatsApp are illegal. So mm-hmm. you, 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 you tell, you know, 
you you may know that as the head of uh, cybersecurity, but your salesperson may not know that, and they're pushing their staff to start using tools that potentially could put them in breach of local laws. So, uh, you know, shadow IT, be that bring your own device or uh, bring your own services, you know, people subscribing to personal cloud services, uh, setting up personal GitHub accounts, setting up uh, uh, personal, you know, LinkedIn accounts, uh, setting their account to be professional as opposed to the ordinary one. There's, there's a lot of things you need to be aware of from the social media, uh, being, your own, being your own device and, and personal cloud services that could undermine the, the security infrastructure of your organization. Indeed. Um, so that's actually a, a perfect uh, segue into our, our next topic, which is social media. So from your experience, um, how have you seen social media play out with uh, the security of an organization, be it, you know, either through red teaming or you've actually seen phishing attacks uh, come through because we've just seen that social engineering is that interface where if you are targeting a company, you can reach those people on the weekend in their free time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's no network or firewall environment that's that's going to um, protect them against that. Oh, yeah. Like uh, we offer red teaming services to our clients uh, and uh, we love social media for, for that point of view. Uh, and I can give you numerous examples of what's used to our advantage. Uh, we don't, uh, as part of any engagement we do with our clients, one of the first things we do is is we uh, go onto LinkedIn and we, we do a, a view of who's who from the organization is in LinkedIn and we look at their profiles so quickly enough we can have a organizational chart we know who fits in in the organization we can look at their profiles we know what technology has been used in the company uh, because everybody has all their certificates they've got from the different vendors uh, uh, that they've used all the you know on the certified Cisco That's engineer right. mm -hmm. perfect so you must be using Cisco we don't need to worry about you using uh, Nokia hardware or whatever mm -hmm. uh, but one project we we worked on with a client, we quickly found out uh, there was confidential leakage because on one project manager's uh, LinkedIn profile, they'd linked, they, they'd listed two or three projects they'd worked on. Uh, so they, they would have, you know, the project uh, name, you know, Project Orange or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. uh, this, was a, this was a project for a, such a client to do X, Y, Z. Uh, and when we communicated that back to the head of security, he goes, how did you know that company was a client of ours? And how did you know we'd done this for that client? Because we're under strict confidentiality agreement with that client not to disclose that we've done any work with them. Yeah, how's that, how was that working oh, no. out for them? <laughs> <laughs> That's our, yeah, straight up on, on LinkedIn. Uh, another engagement we've done was uh, we Twitter is, is a gold mine for us. Mm -hmm. uh, in, one, in one case, we... Uh, uh, Followed the tweets of a CISO in a in in, in a client company, uh, and he was tweeting out and retweeting the feedback he got from a talk he gave at a conference. Uh, and he, he, this was six months before the engagement, but we'd gone back and seen his historical tweets, and 
So we got the information. We used a faked uh, uh, profile on, on LinkedIn to connect with them, pretending that we that this person was uh, representing a large cybersecurity conference, and that would be great for him to be a keynote speaker at it and would pay for his travel and any convenience and uh, would he be happy to uh, to connect and you know so that gave us the introduction and then we were able to send emails with links to to then uh, compromise them so uh, uh, that was a particularly sweet engagement there that. you go there you go and that's and we have yeah. now seen that happening uh, from state actors you know we've, right. we've seen uh, Chinese intelligence services doing mm-hmm. essentially the same thing to to US government contractors um, oh, yeah. And yeah, I think the thing that I tell people the most uh, about social media security when they ask what we do is you are broadcasting your psychology to the world, right? I know everything that you're interested in. I know the yes. sites that you visit, you know, and then whether it's like a, a vacation phishing site or in this case, you know, you're banking on the professional interests or ego of a particular person. Um, mm-hmm. It's all out there for the world to see. So that's why you need to be careful what you post. Absolutely. And, you know, a, a great tool as well is once you've made connections to people on social media accounts is the private messaging features because then you can send people links mm-hmm. to those. And as you said in, in your introductory question there, George, is that uh, uh, you might have good email filtering software on your email to detect uh, suspicious emails. Uh, you might have good web filtering software to detect suspicious websites. But if this person is accessing a link via instant messaging uh, or through private messaging on a, uh, a social media account, that may not be covered by any of your security tools. And it's it's a nice, easy way into the, the core of your systems. Indeed. Yeah, it's not covered by your security tools and a lot of the social media platforms don't have that inherently built in to stop from coming in. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Um, interesting. So I want to turn our attention to Europe. Um, so you had mentioned that cybersecurity is a sexy enough term that it gets the, the board noticing. And I think a large part of that probably is due to GDPR attaching real financial consequences um, to data privacy and, and security operations. Um, but we've also seen some very recent developments as of this week. We saw uh, Google had um, won against the EU trying to enforce the right to be forgotten you know, in uh, places other than the, the bordered confines of the European Union. Mm-hmm. We've seen some issues um, arise in uh, the safe harbor data transfer, transatlantic data transfer agreements, just because uh, you know, Europe is slightly worried about how that European data is then uh, leveraged by American companies. So yeah, I guess it takes slightly worried, George, is a bit of an understatement. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, I was trying to be diplomatic. Um, <laughs> but uh, I guess I just want to understand you, you travel a lot, you talk at conferences, you are working in Europe. So from your uh, policy experience, what can you say about the, the evolution of um, privacy issues or cyber safety perspective is has that bubbled up to like a large uh, consumer level discussion is it is it still just in the halls of policymakers um, how's that how's that shaping up 
Well, I think there's a number of angles to this. So uh, the first one I'll deal with is the uh, data pricing stuff. And in my earlier ramble about the start of my career, you heard me talk about the Data Protection Act in Ireland from 1988. So data privacy and data protection is nothing new within Europe. It, It has been around for a long, long time. But as you rightly pointed out there, George, GDPR actually brought in real teeth uh, and penalties to any breaches that way, which has made companies sit up and take notice of what they need to do to protect the personal data of information handed into individuals. And it's something that I try and when I'm talking to uh, American colleagues about uh, privacy or privacy, whichever way you want to pronounce it, <laughs> uh, that, you know, Often my American colleagues would say, well, look, I don't care if my government knows what I'm emailing or who I'm talking to because, you know, I've got nothing to fear. I've got nothing to hide. And I think that comes from a social history where, you know, if you look at Europe and our history, we've had uh, a very bad record of abusing people's uh, rights, be that of religion, race, creed, uh, different ways, you know, even right up to the to, to the to the uh, uh, Balkan Wars in the 1990s, uh, people being persecuted simply because of their of, of their religion. So we have ingrained in us as Europeans this uh, thing about privacy being very important to us, and that our information is important, and uh, you know that it can also not only is it important, but it also can be abused and misused by authorities and by others as well. So there, there is that social aspect to it that, that people don't that that can you know if you don't come from that background, it, it doesn't mean as much to you. But uh, it has been ingrained in Europe for a long time, and mm-hmm. GDPR has finally brought teeth into the regulations that there are penalties and you know the twenty million euro penalty is 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 our four percent of your global turnover is the headline that that gets everybody talking but people forget there are other penalties there and, and some of them are probably even tougher in that you have to uh you may have to delete all the information you've gathered gathered about your customers or your clients so here in ireland we've had a government department to be found in breach of uh the data protection act so this is pre-gtpr but one of the uh what the Data Protection Commission has told that department to do is is to delete the 3.3 million records that's gathered on people. So, you know, that's a huge amount of data that you suddenly have to get rid of. Google uh, was fined in Germany for how Android gathers people's data. And as a result, Google will have to re-engineer how their Android operating system works. So, you know, the fine was only something like 50,000 euros or something mm-hmm. like that. But the business impact is, is, is much bigger. So GDPR is, as you right says, rightly said, George, is bringing the board more aware of what's going on. But you can also see there's other stuff that's happening in Europe uh, to, to make cybersecurity much more of a, of a business issue. Even this, this month, September, we've had the uh, Payment Service Directive version 2, which has been uh, uh, issued, which means online retailers and on and online businesses have to put enhanced security measures in place to ensure that their clients aren't being 
defrauded. So therefore, you have to detect if people are using stolen credit cards. You have to know your you have to know your customer. You have to make sure there's secure customer authentication uh, onto your websites, etc. So it's pushing the responsibility onto the uh, online providers to make sure they're providing a secure environment for their customers. Yeah, and I think uh, it's also the influence of GDPR, right? I think the the ability yeah. of EU to pass that legislation showed that it was possible. We have the California Data Privacy Act coming online, and I'm sure we Absolutely. will, you know, we'll have many more uh, um, similar pieces of legislation, you know, uh, occurring. What's interesting, I think, is that that legislation is, as we've seen by this court decision, bound by nation state borders. Mm -hmm. But I think the challenge there is these services are largely borderless, right? So is it enforced by server IP address? Is it where the page was accessed? It becomes yeah. becomes uh, pretty tricky. It, it, it does, but that's not, you know, that's when the joys of working in cybersecurity is that just because we have these problems, you know, doesn't mean they can't be solved and hackers and security people like solving tough problems so uh, yes the legislation brings in stuff and it may be based on 20th century beliefs and thoughts about borders you know whereas the internet is borderless but it, there still is a lot of influence and you know the EU is the second largest market in the world so it does have a large influence if you want to do business in the EU you do have to be cognizant of the regulations in there and one of the other ones that came in this summer is the EU Cybersecurity Act which will require products to be certified secure uh, before they can be sold uh, within Europe so those certification schemes aren't in place yet but it will mean if you're going to be selling a software product uh, you have to make sure that is secure before you can sell it within, within Europe and Again, being the second largest market, that no doubt will have uh, implications throughout the rest of the globe. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So we we have typically asked people the conclusion of the interview, you know, w what keeps you up at night. But I feel like we were veering towards um, – uh, a European history lesson, which has some darker overtones. So we'll actually, <laughs> we'll, we'll actually end on a, a more optimistic note, which is um, what gives you the most hope in information security? What, what do you see? What is the sea change that you feel most optimistic about? Uh, what I've been more, more, most optimistic about is the people that are coming into our industry. Um, it's the, it's the new uh, technology companies coming in, looking to solve the problems that are out there, it's the, it's the talent that is coming in. I know there's a lot of talk about the skills gap. I personally don't believe there is a skills gap. I think we ha actually don't have a skills gap. We have uh, a problem with retention that we, mm -hmm. uh, we need to make sure that those who are in, in the industry and enjoy working here are, continue to work in the industry and uh, are rewarded in whatever ways to do that, not just uh, uh, financially, but, uh, uh, you know, otherwise, and there's a lot of skills and talent out there. You know, our our problem is that we're too narrow focused. Mm -hmm. if we're talking about the skills gap. They're talking. You know, it's very often people are looking for somebody who's got uh, 20 years experience at a CISO level who uh, is a Quiz programmer, also top notch uh, TCP/IP and networking person, <laughs> right. and uh, will do it all for twenty five thousand dollars a year and work twenty hours a day. Uh, 
that's not going to happen. We have to be realistic. And and cybersecurity, as we said earlier on, is not just about the technology. It's about the people. It's about the policies. It's about awareness. It's about everything else. And there's a whole lot of skills and talent in other parts of the business, in PR, in sales and marketing, in human resources in uh for sure we need just we need just as many psychologists as we need uh coders absolutely and we need as many accountants and everybody else who can bring those skills to bear into our industry and and help us grow and learn we can't always you know keep ourselves uh ring fenced to be a bunch of techie geek hackers who lo- who love playing with technology and 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 that's all there is to security it's it's much bigger than that. Technology is absolutely critical to to this, but there's a much bigger picture, and we need to 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 respect that and to embrace everybody else. So for me, the bright light is the amount of people and young people and young talented people from all the diverse backgrounds, which I think is even better. Is is you know we're seeing all these people from diverse backgrounds all getting wanting to get involved and. All I would ask those who are listening to this podcast to do your best to encourage that talent, to to grow that talent, and to nurture it. Uh, we, you know, I'm 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 an old fogey now. I, you know, we can't carry the torch for much longer. The next generation and the generations after that are going to have to take that torch. So let's make sure that those generations coming behind us have the enthusiasm and the passion that we've had uh, and, and pass that on. All right. Preach, Mr. Hogan. Hey. Great. <laughs> well, thank you very much for taking I'll, the I'll time. I've that, George, but no drink. Imagine <laughs> what would be like if I had a few. <laughs> uh, well, thank you again for taking the time um, out of your busy schedule to talk with us. We really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. No and, then, and, then, and then last last question is Liverpool going to win the league? Oh, I hope so. Uh, five, five points clear. I, so. I will admit to being a Man City fan at present, so you and I can fight that out on Twitter, but I also love the way Liverpool's been <laughs> playing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's way too early in the season. Like, January last season, we we had seven points ahead, you know, so... Uh, That's right. It's uh, early anyway, days, but as of, days. A, as, of, as of September, the table is bananas right now with uh, West yeah, Ham above United, but... <laughs> There you go. Well, as a Liverpool supporter, uh, that is just that. That is that's right. Bliss. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks very much. Cheers, George. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Take care. Bye bye. That was great. Week two of Cybersecurity Awareness Month is kicking off in a great way. Yep. And tune in next week for an interview with Dr. Victoria Baines, who is a visiting research fellow at Oxford University, among other things. She has also been a cybersecurity advisor to Europol, so we're very much looking forward to that. And uh, other than that, we will see you next week. As ever, we are grateful to Abby Bruce for sound design and production, Matthias Cefaletti for our theme music. But until next time, stay safe. Stay safe.